Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in Daniel chapter 7 tonight. Daniel chapter 7 is kind of a transition in the book of Daniel. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel speak of Daniel in the third person. And so there is speculation about who wrote those first six chapters, whether Daniel was writing of himself in the third person or whether it was one of the Hebrew children recording what was happening to Daniel, we don't really know. This is also the place where the transition happens in Daniel from the Chaldean language into the Hebrew language. And Daniel begins speaking of himself first person. So all of those transitions are happening as we start looking at the eschatological portions of Daniel. Now, how are we going to do that? Because there is a tremendous amount of interpretation and speculation out on the Internet. It's going to be my effort throughout this to compare Scripture with Scripture and try to make sure that our understanding of what we're reading is based on the whole corpus of what God has said. Because I find that way too many online interpretations of Daniel's prophecies and visions is imaginary. People just kind of not looking at everything that surrounds it, but taking passages away from their natural biblical context and then just speculating on what it might mean. I'm going to try not to do that. We're going to try not to do might mean because I am convinced that pretty much everything we're going to run into has a connection to other parts of the Bible and also has historical connections and that if we look at Daniel in those contexts, we can get pretty close to what he's saying and what he means. Now, I am going to be following to a certain degree John Walvoord's book called Daniel, the Key to Revelation. And so once in a while, we are going to have to look at the book of Revelation to see the connections. Once in a while, again, we're going to have to go back and see the connections in Ezekiel because there are images, there are figures that, again, people say, well, that's symbolic. And since it's symbolic, I can now interpret it wildly. And then they come up with their own private interpretations of Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation. But I think by comparing the one with the other with the other, we can come to a pretty good grasp of what Daniel was getting at, and there's some stuff in the book of Daniel that we can't even argue about. I mean, there's some stuff in Daniel's visions that even God is going to interpret for us. And you know that I like it when God interprets for us, because I live by the rule, if God interprets it, that's the interpretation. And you should stop your interpreting because God interpreted it. Is that too obvious? So in order to talk about Daniel chapter 7, we have to start by, I think, we have to start by making a chart, which is why you see this 
these many lines drawn up here with, with Leon's yardstick up here on my whiteboard, because we're going to start filling in blanks so that you can see connections. Over the course of time, as we continue through the book, we're going to do this several more times so that you can really see that there are direct connections in the book of Daniel that help us understand exactly what he's getting at. So even though I said we're in Daniel chapter 7, we're actually going to start in Daniel chapter 2. But don't turn there. I'm going to see how much you've retained. That's right. You came to church tonight, and there's a quiz. You didn't expect that. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember his dream. Nebuchadnezzar tells everybody, tell me my dream, or I'm going to kill you and make your house into a dung heap. And then everybody, all the Chaldeans, the magicians, the soothsayers, they all panic. And then Daniel says, what's all the panic? That's the Jimmerized version of that early part of the chapter. The Jimmerized version. Somebody said that to me on the internet recently. They said, we like the Jimmerized version of that. And so I just ran with it. Okay, so the dream was that Nebuchadnezzar saw a giant statue, right? Okay, what was the composite of the head at the top of the statue? Okay, so it was gold. So we're going to start there. Do you remember the chest and the arms? What were they made of? Silver. Okay, then what were the belly and the sides made of? Bronze. And then what were the legs made of? Iron. And then did he stop there? No, he didn't stop there. What's the final world vision in that particular dream? Do you remember? You, you got the question before I even asked it. Iron and clay mixed into 10 toes, right? Iron and clay. I'm sure none of you can read that, but that says iron and clay in hieroglyphic form because I'm also doing Egyptian studies and that, never mind. Okay, but then there's a final kingdom. What was the final kingdom made up of? Stone. Stone, the stone kingdom that came down from heaven. Okay, so now in Daniel chapter 2, Fortunately for us, God interprets what each of these images are. The head of gold, who did that represent? Nebuchadnezzar. And Babylon. I'm just going to write Neb, Babylon. Silver kingdom. We're told who that is. Who is it? Medo-Persia. Very good. And then, along with Medo-Persia, we are introduced prophetically through Isaiah to the king that is going to be significant in the history of Israel. Who is he? Cyrus. Very good. Then we get to the sides, the belly of brass. 
Now, God does not specifically tell us who the particular leader is, but what does history tell us that turns out to be? Turns out to be the Greek kingdom, and the leader is Alexander. Now, what you're going to see tonight, why this is important, and why we're going through this exercise, that says Alexander <laughs> for some reason. What you're going to see tonight is that Daniel is going to refer not only to the Greek kingdom, but to the notable horn which is a symbol of power and authority, and so he makes direct reference to Alexander the Great. So in these three kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greek, we find Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, and Alexander all directly referred to in Scripture. That's important. Because the next one of iron, the legs of iron, what kingdom is that? Rome. That's Rome. And what notable king of Rome is mentioned in the Bible? None, right. Jeff was the only one going, no, I don't think so, no. No, there's none. There's none, which is interesting. And as we continue through this, you're going to see why that's significant. It was Constantine. There were plenty of notables that we can name. And certainly Constantine is very important to the development of the Catholic Church and all that. But, you know, whether you say Augustus Caesar or whether you, there's just not in the Bible again any significant Roman ruler on par with Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Alexander the Great, all of whom are specifically mentioned. Okay, so then the iron and clay ten-toed kingdom, who is that? Well, that's just a kingdom to come. We haven't seen it yet. It's nowhere in history. We can't point the way we can point to those previous kingdoms and say, there it is. We have found it historically. We can't point to any ten-toed confederation of nations. And that number is significant. It's going to come up again. Daniel's going to say, instead of ten toes, ten horns. But then he's going to refer to one particular leader again, and talk about the little horn. And then he's going to develop the little horn. And then throughout the rest of this book, the little horn is going to become increasingly important. So Daniel is doing two things here. He's telling us the succession of kingdoms on planet Earth that are in the Middle East that specifically oppressed Israel. That's why these kingdoms. That's why in this list you don't see anything about South American Incas. That just doesn't come up because they had no direct effect on Israel and Jerusalem. The kingdoms that he mentions are the ones that have a particular influence over God's chosen people. Okay, the stone kingdom, who's that? Christ. Christ, that's the rule of Christ. That's the kingdom to come. So we're going to write kingdom of Christ. Now, having done this exercise, which we're going to continue to fill out as the night goes along, I hope that you can see that if it's the gold, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, if it's the silver, Medo-Persia, Cyrus, if it's the brass, Alexander the Great among the Greeks, iron and clay, Tento kingdom, you still got the little horn, whether it's the stone kingdom, it's the kingdom of Christ, every one of those has a particular leader that the Bible names except the Roman kingdom. 
except the Roman hierarchy. It just doesn't come up anywhere in the Bible. And yet, the vast majority of books you can buy about Daniel eschatology make a really big deal of Rome. And actually, Daniel downplays Rome. Rome's not what it's about. Rome is a continuation of the kingdoms that happened historically, but during the time of Rome, there's no spiritual, powerful leader. As we continue through the book of Daniel, we won't get to it tonight, but Daniel is going to be told by an angel that Michael has kept the prince of Persia at bay while Gabriel came to speak to Daniel. And then Gabriel says that he's going to leave, and then the prince of Persia is going to be replaced by the prince of Grisha. Behold, the prince of Grisha comes. So now we get an idea that Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, the prince of Persia, and that Alexander the Great, the prince of Grisha, that they all have a spiritual power that is driving them, which is why they accomplished the things that they did on the stage of history. They weren't just doing it under their own authority, their own power. You're going to see as we continue on in the book that Daniel is being presented visions of the world with the the sort of curtain of darkness that we all live in, that curtain is taken away and he finds out about the spiritual battles that are going on in the heavens that directly affect the people of Israel. That is true of Nebuchadnezzar, that is true of Cyrus, that is true of Alexander, that is certainly true of the Antichrist of the Ten-Toed Kingdom, and it's not said about Rome. And in fact, long as I'm leaping way ahead, uh, when John on Patmos in the book of Revelation sees images of the world ruler to come, he is described as was, is not, and will come again. The is not period is during the Rome period. While he's put on the Isle of Patmos by Roman leaders, that power, whatever that power is that drove these previous kings, that spiritual dark power that drove those kings, that gave them the ability to accomplish the things that they did, that power was not being exercised during the Roman period while Jesus was on the planet. But then, once Jesus has left, there is the prediction of a, a world ruler coming who I believe is going to be as driven as Alexander the Great was, who's going to have that same power that was in the prince of Persia and the prince of Grisha. And when he comes to the planet, he's going to do things that amaze people. John says that people are going to look on him and worship him and say, who is like the beast? Because he's going to do wonderful and miraculous things by the power of darkness that drove these previous kings. Does that all make sense? Because yes. I want you to see this through the spiritual lens that Daniel's writing about. If you just see it in human ways, if you just see it as fleshly adventures of people on planet Earth, you're going to miss what Daniel's really driving at, which is there have been terrible and powerful, demonically driven powers on planet Earth that have accomplished kingdoms, and there's another one coming. And I think that 
kind of lends itself to why I believe the church has to be gone before that all happens. But we'll get to that later. Turn to Daniel 7. I know I had you in Daniel 2 for a moment. Because now Daniel is going to see another vision. And then God's going to interpret the vision. And then there's going to be a final concluding vision. So this chapter is really kind of divided up into three parts. But let's start with the first vision where Daniel sees a series of animals God keeps giving him over and over. Whether through Nebuchadnezzar or whether through his own visions, God keeps teaching him this is the succession of kingdoms. I've been saying for the last couple of weeks, I'm obsessing over kingdoms right now and the kingdom of Christ to come. Because I feel like with every day that goes by, we're getting closer to the kingdom of the Antichrist and ultimately the return of Christ and the kingdom of Christ. I think it's just axiomatic with every day we're getting closer to it. But I want it to come. I want it to come right away. I want it to come now. Let's move. I'm ready to go. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, that tells us that we have moved back in our chronology. We've already been through Belshazzar. We've already seen Belshazzar conquered by Darius the Mede. And we've already seen Cyrus the the Persian coming into power as well while Daniel is serving in his administration. And so now Daniel is moving back as he lists his visions. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Okay, that's before Daniel in the lion's den. That's before the fall of Babylon. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. I want you to watch for something as we read through this. Daniel's going to use a literary device that would be easy to miss if you're not paying attention to it. Daniel uses the phrase, I looked, I saw. Then I saw. Then I looked. Then I saw. So he's creating a sequence on purpose. So we have to see these things sequentially. It's very much like the way that John in chapter 19 and chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, he says, and then, and then, and then, so that he's creating a sequence that you can't really destroy, even though the recapitulation theory that is so uh, popular among the amillennialists have to destroy that sequence that John has created. But they're being very careful to tell us that the things we're looking at are things that happen sequentially. And that's going to be important when we get to the kingdom to come. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring the great sea. Throughout the Old Testament, the Mediterranean is the sea that is typically referred to as the great sea. That's the sea that had the most effect on the children of Jerusalem and the people of the Middle East. They refer to the Mediterranean in particular. Now, you can read right now. The controversy already begins. You can get online and you can read all sorts of interpretations of what the four winds are. Except that throughout the Old Testament, God who is in charge of the winds and talks about the influence of the west wind and the east wind and the So I believe that what Daniel means when he says, 
I saw the four winds of heaven. I believe that what he means is I saw the four winds of heaven. Stop me when this is complicated. (laughs) He's just getting you ready for what's coming. He's just saying that he saw the world sort of beginning to roil, that the waves are coming up, the four winds are blowing. Whenever winds blow on the great sea, a storm comes up. He's getting you ready for what he's about to describe. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. Now, the great sea may be symbolic of the whole world, so that he saw four great beasts coming up out of the the whole world to conquer in the Middle East. I think what he's saying is by identifying the great sea and saying that they come up out of the great sea, he's locating it geographically. He's telling us where these four beasts are going to be. They've come up out of the Great Sea. To where? To the Middle East. That's where that is. So I think he's telling us where these people were, and of course, historically, we know where they were. So the first was like a lion, and he had the wings of an eagle. Modern mythology calls that a griffin. A griffin comes up out of the ground, a lion with wings like an eagle, I kept looking until the wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, a human mind also was given to it. Okay, so here's the image. If you go back and you look at Babylonian art, if you go back and you just look at the remnants of Babylon, you see a lot of griffins. That's one of the primary symbols It is said that the throne that Nebuchadnezzar sat on was flanked on either side by a whole series of griffins, lions with wings. And so the lion with wings is symbolic initially of the Babylonian kingdom, but then that image, that beast, is made to stand up like a man, the wings are taken from him, and he's given a mind like a man. So Daniel sees two things. He sees the kingdom but then he sees the ruler of the kingdom. So one more time, here we are right back at, there's a kingdom, but then there's a significant ruler, and that can't be ignored. Behold, then there was another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth, between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which, by the way, in the Middle East at that time, leopards were pretty much the scariest creature. At least a lion was going to be fast for a little while, but he was going to lay back down. Leopards, really scary. And this is a leopard that has on his back Four wings of a bird. So he's not just fast. He's really fast. And the beast also had four heads. And dominion was given to it. So we still know we're talking about kingdoms. We still know that he has dominion. So the sequence goes from a lion with wings who becomes a man to a bear who gets raised up on one side and has ribs in his teeth to a leopard who has wings who is also given dominion. 
And after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. Now, I think we could make the argument that that's Rome, except that as the argument continues, as Daniel continues writing what his vision was, it very quickly becomes not Rome. It very quickly jumps past Rome. Daniel doesn't give it a particular name. If it was Rome, like the other kingdoms who had identifiable animals, I think if he was trying to make some emphasis of Rome, he would have given some image of Rome, some animal of Rome. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, I was looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, which means all of the previous kingdoms were then conquered and subsumed by that kingdom. By the way, on Facebook, somebody told me that subsumed and the way that I used it this past week was completely correct. So I feel good right now about my English skills. I know that the previous kingdoms and all the remnants of those kingdoms are ultimately swallowed up by this nondescript beast. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. There's the ten now. now. So now we know it's not describing Rome. The fact that it starts with crushing and teeth of iron and everything else, it seems to have a Roman connection to it, the same way that there were the legs of iron, but then the ten toes are iron and clay. So there's some Roman influence in there, but it's a, it's a different entity unto itself. Uh, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among those ten, and three of those first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So here again, he has described a ten-nation confederacy that becomes the final kingdom, and in the midst of that, he also talks about a leader. So the same way again, consistent across the board, the same way that in Babylon, in Medo-Persia, in Greece, he talks about the significant leader and then he kind of skips over Rome, and then there's the final kingdom, and again he talks about a significant leader. And he had a mouth that was uttering great boasts, and we're going to see that in the Old and the New Testament. The wicked one to come, that man of dark sentences to come, that man of lawlessness, that man of sin, one of his defining characteristics is that he boasts against God and against the things of heaven and that ultimately Christ is going to return to destroy his kingdom. So this is completely consistent with everything else we see in the Bible about the abomination that makes desolation. So having said all that, starting at verse 9, he's going to start getting an interpretation of all this stuff. 
I kept looking, he writes, until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Okay, who's that? God. That's God. That has to be. He's the only one referred to as the Ancient of Days. And he's sitting in his, on his seat, which is very much like Ezekiel's uh, description of his throne with wheels and wheels within wheels. That, that he sits on a throne that's almost like a mobile chariot throne, that he's everywhere at once, that he's all-seeing and that he's all-knowing. The Ancient of Days sits on his seat and his vesture was like white snow and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. And this is just an odd word to use when describing a throne, but it fits the Ezekiel description. The wheels of the throne were a burning fire. So God's on a mobile throne. God goes wherever he wants in his mobile throne, seeing everything, knowing everything, and he is setting up judgment. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the court sat, and the books were open. It's very much what Revelation says. Same idea, the same image from the same God to his prophets. The one that John saw was the same one that Daniel saw, that the books are ultimately going to be opened and everyone's going to be judged out of what's written in the books. The difference between the Daniel account and the Revelation account is in the book of Revelation, he also says everyone who was not written in the Lamb's book of life, the books were opened and they were judged out of what's in the books. So these books seem to be a record. It seems to be a record that is being kept in heaven and everybody's going to be judged according to what is recorded of them. Let me also point out one more thing. This is just for free. I've got enough time. I'm going to do this. There is a very, very popular notion out there among folk who don't like the premillennial view or people who adhere to the amillennial view that they say the number 1,000 in the book of Revelation, especially Revelation 20, that the number 1,000 just simply means large expanse of time, that it's an indiscriminate number. It's not a specific number. And I like to point out whenever people say something that's silly, that there is a word, John was writing in the Greek, and this was translated from the Greek Septuagint, and so they used very specific words to translate the, the Chaldean Hebrew writing that was here. John had at his disposal two words. He had the numeric mathematic number 1,000, and he used it over and over again, Kiliad. He knew that word. That means a thousand. It always means a thousand. Even if it's multiple thousands, it still just means a thousand. Then you have to define how many multiples, but it means a thousand. And so for the folks who say, well, it's just a large indiscriminate number, and you know, it's it's a spiritual number because ten is the number of completeness, and ten times ten, and so it just means the completion of everything God is doing. Those are just fanciful descriptions that people are making up to avoid what the Bible actually says. John also has at his disposal the word myriad, which comes from the Greek myrios. It wasn't even really translated. It was just kind of transliterated into the English language. What myrios means is large indiscriminate number. When you're looking at great crowds and great crowds, 
we still say it today, well, well, there's just myriad here. And so John uses a particular phrase that he actually gets from Daniel, so I don't want you to miss it, that John talks about all the people that are at the throne of God, people of every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation, and he describes it as thousands and thousands, thousands upon thousands, and myriad and myriad, which is exactly how Daniel says it. So in other words, Daniel and John left the number 1,000 intact. It still is a mathematic number that means something. It has a mathematical equivalence. And so for John to say at the beginning of Revelation 20, a thousand years, and to say it six different times, I think he was driving home the point that he meant a thousand years. And then folks will say, well, he can't mean that. He must mean something spiritualized. He must mean 10 times 10 large indiscriminate number, except that earlier in that same letter, he used the word myriad, which shows us that he knows that name. He knows that word. And had he meant to say large indiscriminate number, he could have used that word. But he didn't. He used a specific mathematic word. You got all that? And John's getting it. From Daniel. So Daniel and John are talking about the same thing, the same God, the same image, the same vision. And if you're going to start playing with numbers and you end up saying 144,000, well, that's the church. And the 24 elders, that's the uh, church. And that's just too easy. You don't have to do any actual study of the word. You can just kind of subsume everything under the church. There, I've used it twice tonight. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the court sat, and the books were open. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until that beast, that little horn, was slain and its body was destroyed and it was given to the fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So there was a period of time when each of these kingdoms arose and when each of these inspired, spiritually inspired uh, rulers had their time on the planet. So now let's start filling in blanks again. So the head of gold, which is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, that's the lion with wings. He lost his wings. He stood up like a man and the mind of a man was given to him. The bear, of course, is Medo-Persia. The bear is lifted up on one side. The most common understanding of the fact that Daniel would point that out is because in the history of Medo-Persia, Darius was the chief leader originally, and then Cyrus rose to prominence. And then Darius served Cyrus. And so, therefore, it's even a historically accurate description that Medo-Persia was lifted up on one side as one ruler came up above the other one. The bear is also described as having three ribs in his mouth. 
There are two primary interpretations of that. Either one you like, you can go with. In the Old Testament, there are seven kingdoms listed that ever persecute Israel, starting with the Egyptian captivity. So if you go right down through there, there's Egypt, there's Assyria, there's Babylon, then there's Medo-Persia, and then the others that we have up here for a total of seven, ultimately. If the three ribs are a reference to those three preceding kingdoms, then that would be Babylon and Assyria and Egypt, that those three kingdoms that have persecuted Israel have now been uh, wiped from the stage of history, and now it is the Medo-Persian Empire that is oppressing Israel, and so the three ribs in his mouth. It may also be, history tells us, that there were three definitive battles that Medo-Persia fought to come into power ultimately in Babylon. And that was Egypt, that was Babylon, and that was Lydia. And so it may be a reference to those three major battles that finally brought the bear to power, and that's why he has the three ribs in his mouth. Either one of those you want to go with is okay with me. I just think it's interesting that Daniel would be that specific, and trust me, it gets even more specific as we continue. So then the Greek kingdom is the leopard with wings, and of course the leopard with wings is then described as having the eyes and the mind of a man. So it's also a reference to that leader, Alexander the Great. And then you would think there'd be an animal right here for Rome. You'd think that there'd be some specific animal. But instead, the next thing that Daniel sees and talks about is a non-described beast. And so he's usually referred to as the nondescript beast. And he's got the teeth of iron, which kind of connects him to Rome, but then right away you make the leap to the fact that it's a ten-horn kingdom. Just like it was a ten-toed kingdom, it becomes a ten-horn kingdom. And then there is a little horn who rises up, takes three of the ten by force, which implies that the other seven just give him the authority. Now, for those of you who are watching, and this is a little extra biblical, this is just something you can pay attention to. I just find it really interesting. If you look at some of the nations in the Middle East right now, including, by the way, Iran, they are looking for the caliphate. They're waiting to build the caliphate. And right in their national constitution is the idea that when the 12th imam appears and presents himself, that they give him the government. Now, how did Daniel know that way back here? And so the idea is that he's going to uproot three by force. That's what we're told. The assumption is the other seven are just going to fall in line with him. And he's given, that little horn is given eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And we're just going to keep seeing that time and time again throughout the Bible. Now, keep your finger where you are. Turn to Revelation 13. 
because this is interesting too. Revelation 13, we're really starting in verse 2, but we'll start at verse 1. And he stood on the sand of the seashore. Where does that place him? Yeah, Mediterranean between the land and sea. The angel's standing there, and look at the next thing that happens. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns. That's what Daniel was just describing, the ten-horned kingdom. John sees the same thing. He had ten horns. He had seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like, catch this, was like a leopard. That's the very same thing that Daniel has already told us. We already know who the leopard is. It's Alexander the Great. And this beast that is to come is like the leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear. No surprise there. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. What a surprise. Now, I think interpretively, we could argue that what John is getting at is that the power that this beast is going to have, since he said them in reverse order, the power that he's going to have is that power that was is not during John's day and is to come again. Whatever that power is, whatever that demonic driving power is, is coming from the leopard. It's coming from Alexander the Great. But then he's going to stand, his feet are going to be placed like a bear, which puts him right in the area of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Middle East, all of that area. Now we know what area he's going to come up out of. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. He's going to advance Babylonian ideas and concepts, philosophy, religion. And that's only going to be too easy to do in the world we live in today, which just accepts everything without any kind of critical thinking and where all kinds of mystery religion stuff is already very popular in the world, especially in Rome, which has kept Babylonian mystery religion alive all these years. So the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like a bear, his mouth was like a lion, and look at the next line, and the dragon, who's the dragon? Satan, Satan himself. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. There's the demonic influence. So there have been kingdoms in the past. Daniel has described the kingdoms of the past. He has described them both as a kingdom and as a ruler. And he has made it very clear that those individual rulers were inspired by demonic spiritual influences. And he describes that for Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece. He skips over Rome because nothing in the Bible tells us about a Roman leader that is demonically inspired. And in fact, John describes that power, whatever that is, as was, is not, and is going to be again, and is going to go into perdition. That's what John says about it. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and John sees an amalgam of these very beasts. 
and then tells us without question that the dragon is going to give him his authority and his power. That should make you very, very happy, by the way, that the rest of the Bible appears to indicate that we won't be here when that happens. Because I don't want to be on the planet when there's somebody with that kind of unbridled power and demonic authority. But the church appears, and I am convinced, is going to be gone, and that's why that spirit is going to be unleashed. That's certainly what Paul argues. That restrains, must restrain, till he's taken out of the way, and then that man of sin will be revealed. So, all right, back to Daniel 7. We're nearly done. No, we're not. There's still time. Verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. There's Christ. One of the most important Christological pieces of nomenclature in the entire Old Testament is the phrase son of man. It's just so very, very significant. He's not just the son of God. But he is a human. He is the son of man as well as being the son of God. And that is predicted in Daniel. And it becomes a very important name for Christ. I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before the ancient of days. Really interesting that when Jesus leaves the planet that there is an angel standing there with the disciples who have seen him sail off into the blue, and he says to them, why do you stand here gazing up into the heavens? The same Jesus that you saw leave, which was that he was enveloped in clouds and taken away, is going to return in like manner. So there is this consistent image of Christ ruling over and being carried by the clouds of heaven. It's what Daniel saw. It's what the disciples saw. It's what John saw. And it's a magnificent vision. So he says, I kept looking, and behold, the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory. And what's the next word? And he was given a kingdom. And this is on the back of a whole succession of kingdoms. There was a kingdom, and there was another kingdom, and there was another kingdom, and that kingdom destroyed all the kingdoms before it. And then there was a king, and then finally there's the kingdom that's given to Christ. And all of the previous kingdoms are done away with completely because of the superiority of the dominion and the glory of this kingdom. It is a kingdom that all the peoples, the nations, and the men of every language would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Every other kingdom on the board, go right down the list. Destroyed, 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 destroyed. And then you get to the stone kingdom of Christ. Never destroyed. You'll also notice that there was no 
animal figure. There was no beast figure. There was no, the kingdom of Christ is unique, is singular. It's where all the power, where all the dominion stands. So verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the vision of my mind kept alarming me. Well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I approached one of those who were standing by and I began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. Oh, good, good. Daniel asked on our behalf. What's the meaning of all this? Okay, now when he tells us what the meaning is, that's the meaning. You don't get to say, well, it means that plus whatever I make up. It means that plus whatever my imagination can come up with. It means what Daniel's about to say it means. I approached one of those who were standing by, and I began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. The word arise there in the, in the original language can mean arise to establish a kingdom, but it can also kind of mean arise, like getting up from a chair to leave. They're going to arise on the stage of history, and they're going to leave the stage of history. Now let's talk about that number four for just a moment, because this is really important. He just told you exactly how many kingdoms he's talking about. He's talking about four. Okay, which four is he talking about? He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He's talking about Medo-Persia. He's talking about Alexander the Great. And he's talking about the iron and clay, ten-toed kingdom. And he skipped right over Rome. There's no reference to Rome there. And as I said before, most of the left-behind type books and movies that you see today make a great deal of Rome. Daniel doesn't, John doesn't, the Bible doesn't. They're interested in the spiritual authority driving these kingdoms so that they can make the comparison between the spiritual authority of those kingdoms and the spiritual authority of the king to come, but they skip right over Rome. How come? Why, why do the people make a bigger deal out of Rome than Daniel or John or anyone else? Why did they make that connection? Because when Christ was on the planet, Rome had dominion, and because we do see the legs of iron, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but historically, Rome has always been, well, for the last couple thousand years of the Christian church, Rome has always been where everybody points. The Pope has been identified as the Antichrist over and over again. The reference in the book of Revelation to the city on the seven hills points to Rome. And so then people start saying, well, the, the woman with the cup that is the blood of martyrs and the blood of saints, that's Rome. Because Rome has a lot of iconology like that. And so Rome is the obvious one to point at. But I'm not trying to point at popular theology. I'm trying to point at what the Bible says. Right. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Notice that he did not say four kingdoms that will arise out of the earth. He's ultimately not talking about the kingdoms. He's talking about the kings. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He's talking about Cyrus. He's talking about Alexander the Great. And he's talking about the little horn. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom 
and possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come. Now let me just talk about the word saints for just a moment there. We here in 21st century Christian America, whenever we see the word saints, we think it means us. It's about the church. That's what it means when it says saints. Daniel's not talking about the church. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about God's chosen within Israel. They are the hagias. They are the saints. They are the ones who have the kingdom promises. And so God is going to give them the kingdom. And then when you get into the book of Matthew, and particularly around Matthew 24, and Jesus uses the exact same language that Daniel's using, and he talks about saints, people get all excited and say, well, that's New Testament. So that means us. That means saints is us. And then when John uses the word saints in the book of Revelation, that's, a, that's the church. We're right back there. We're right back to it's all the church. 144,000, that's the church. 24 elders, that's the church. The saints, that's the church. But it's not. It has a context. It has a word usage. It has a history behind it. The saints that Daniel is speaking of specifically at this moment are the saints of Israel. So, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And I wanted to know the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn that had eyes, and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn, that little horn, who we're going to later call the Antichrist, that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. If you don't get saints right in verse 18, then you're going to get confused when you get to verse 21 and conclude that the Antichrist does war with the church. That's a very common thinking, very common assumption that the Antichrist is going to do war with the church. And it's one of the reasons that people end up saying, well, the church is going to be here when the Antichrist is on the planet because he's going to do war with the saints. But you have to look at the context to understand who the saints are so that you understand who he's going to do war with. He is going to do war with the Hagias, with the, the people of God, with the people of God who are chosen to have a kingdom, who are promised a kingdom and promised a king and have the Davidic covenant. Those people, those saints of God have a kingdom to come and he's going to do war with them. But if you get confused about it and you start saying the Antichrist is going to do war with the church, then you have a whole lot of theological problems. Because you have to ask why Christ died for us to save and protect us and take us away from the curse. And then God gave us over to the curse and turned us over to demonic authority. That makes no sense. But it's the logical conclusion of bad theology. I kept looking 
And that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So thus he said, the fourth beast, who hasn't appeared on the stage of history yet, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Let's see, how could there be a ten-nation confederacy within the Middle East? Oh, caliphate seems to work. Well, that seems to fit. What are we seeing in the world right now? What's going on in the world? Oh, oh that's right. The Middle Eastern nations are trying to join together around their oil interests, around their land interests, and around the one thing they all have in common. Do you know what that is? Hate the Jews. Destroy the Jews. Who are who? The saints of God. Do you see the relevance? Do you see the relevance? Do you see the relevance of what Daniel has already predicted? Then he said, the fourth beast, this is verse 23, will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. And he will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times... Okay, think about that for just a moment, because this is the word for the set times of God. It's also referred to as the feasts of the Lord. Three times all of the children of Israel, three times a year, all of the children of Israel had to appear in Jerusalem before God and have feasts before God. And they had to keep their Sabbaths, and they had to let the land grow fallow. God was very specific about time, that they kept specific times. Does that phrase, he will intend to make alterations, to the feasts, to the times, and to the law. Does that apply to the church? No. There's nothing there that applies to the church. It makes it even more obvious who Daniel's talking to. So he's going to make changes to the times and to the law. We don't have time to look at it tonight, but remember that both in Isaiah and in Ezekiel there are descriptions of Satan and the fall of Satan. And what was the one thing that Satan was determined to do? In his ego, in his pride, in his beauty, which a lot of people get wrong. Get this right. Satan is not what you see on packages of devil ham. That red character with horns holding a pitchfork. That's just Middle Ages art. Okay. He was raised up because of his beauty and his pipes and his tabrets were within him, which means he was probably a musician, and I shudder to admit that. And, and the thing that he wanted to do most was God had placed his throne in the place of the north, and Satan said, I will place my throne in the place of the north, and I will be worshipped like God. 
Satan's intention is to thwart the intentions of God. And that's what Daniel is saying here. He's going to make alterations to the feasts and the law, which are the very essence of what God gave Israel that made them unique from every other nation on the planet. He's going to try to change that, which is going to make the saints of God rebel against the God of heaven. And, and so you can see the types of blasphemies that he's involved in. And they, they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. How long is that? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Now you're going to get to the book of Revelation, and it's going to say, a time, and times, and half a time. Where did John get that? Because the same God who gave the same visions to Daniel and to John use that particular designation, time, times, and half a time. But then John defines it for us and tells us it's 42 months. That's three and a half years. Then he defines it for us mathematically and says it's 1,260 days, which on the Jewish lunar calendar of 30 days a month works out to exactly 1,260 days. So this idea of three and a half years is not vague. And as we continue through Daniel, you're going to see why that three and a half is so important. But for the moment, I'll just leave that dangling there so that you'll come back and go, oh, I need to know more about that. He will speak out, verse 25, against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the Highest One. He will intend to make alterations in the times and in the law. And they will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But... The court will sit in judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Apparently, it took three active verbs in order for Daniel to say how completely God was going to wipe him out. He's going to lose his dominion. He's going to be annihilated. He's going to be destroyed forever. We know from the book of Revelation, he's thrown into the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. So we know we're talking about somebody demonic here. And then, verse 27, and then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all those kingdoms under heaven and under the whole of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him when he sets up his king in Jerusalem when he puts his holy king on his holy mountain exactly like he promised David he would do he's not just going to be the king of a region and he's not just going to be the king of a particular people He's going to have rulership and dominion over all the people and all other dominions, all other leaderships are going to have to do obeisance to him forever. All the dominions will serve and obey him. And at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale but I kept the matter to myself. It's not much to himself anymore, is it? It's pretty much out there in the open. Okay, so that's chapter 7 of Daniel, which I think is a really good introduction 
to what we're about to see. Now, by the way, let me also say, because there, there's just so, so very much coming up. Um, the leopard. One of the distinguishing characteristics that Daniel saw about the leopard was that it had four heads. That's interesting. You know what history tells us? That when Alexander died, which coming up, Daniel's going to tell us, that when the prince of Grisha dies, that his dominion, his authority is not going to go to his posterity. And that's true. It turned out that that was right. Uh, even though Alexander the Great had a young son, his young son never ruled. When Alexander died, his kingdom was divided up into four different portions and ruled over by his four generals who were his four heads. How did Daniel know that? Why wasn't it three heads? Why wasn't it five heads? No, it was four heads because there are four kingdoms that are going to be divided up. And in the weeks to come, we're going to get into the king of the north and the king of the south, which are two of the successions that come from those generals in the two areas that are closest to Jerusalem, the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid portion of the Alexandrian kingdom become the king of the north and the king of the south. And Daniel, again, is going to whittle down history in advance, and he's going to tell us with remarkable accuracy what's coming and what's going to happen so that everybody sees it coming, so that everybody knows it's coming. And where is it going to end again? At the little horn. He just keeps driving that. He just keeps saying, it's been bad, <laughs> but it's really going to get bad because the Bible keeps pointing toward the fact that he's coming, because once he comes and once his kingdom rises up on the earth, Christ's kingdom comes and wipes out all the kingdoms of the planet, and finally righteousness breaks out on planet earth. That's what's coming. That's like coming attractions. That's what the Bible teaches Old and New Testament over and over and over again. You would think that at some point we would go, yeah, that's right. That's what's coming. Questions? Yes, sir? I was taught that this kind of language that he went through here is called apocalyptic literature, and it was very common. And there was lots of it. Yeah. And these terms were very common. It's probably one of the reasons he had to interpret it, because it was used a lot. And that, that's why I began by saying tonight, in order to interpret these symbols, we have to interpret in light of everything else in the Bible so that we see the consistency of it. Because common doesn't mean that Daniel was just repeating common mythological right. Middle Eastern ideas. Otherwise, you wouldn't also you know, see it. A beast with ten heads or ten horns was very common in the language. Yes. But, but he's using specifics. But he's using specifics. specifics exactly. And the reason we know it's specific is because Jesus picks it up and John picks it up. Let's talk about that word apocalyptic literature for just a moment. Have you read any of the others? Yeah. Uh huh. But let's talk about the word for just a moment because it becomes an excuse in too much of the church. The book of Revelation, the Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis. Right. It's the book of the apocalypse. Yeah. Translated the apocalypse from which we get the word apocalyptic. In other words, here's the circle they run in. You can't take the book of Revelation literally because it's apocalyptic. The word apocalypsis, of course the apocalypsis is apocalyptic. You know? Of course apocalyptic 
literature is apocalyptic by its very nature. But the excuse becomes because it's apocalyptic, which I don't deny, it is. The apocalypsis is, in fact, apocalyptic. I get it. But that's not an excuse not to study it. That's not an excuse not to look at the whole rest of the Bible and understand what the book is about. Because the end of the book of Revelation also has a blessing attached to it. It's well worth studying all of this stuff. If you do the math, a little more than a quarter and not quite a third of the whole Bible is prophecy. And yet way too much of modern Christianity utterly ignores that. But if you can see that the God of the Bible tells the future in advance accurately, that will build up your faith. That will build up your confidence that if he can do all this and all that, then he can take care of your electric bill. You know? But here's a rule. Okay, this is a rule that I go by across the board. Nobody knows more about what John saw than John does. And if John tells us what he saw, that's what he saw. Nobody knows more about what Daniel saw than Daniel does. And if he tells us that's what he saw, that's what he saw. And every image that you find in the Bible, going all the way back to Joseph having a dream about the sun and the moon and the stars all bowing to him, which comes up in the book of Revelation again, Every image in the Bible, every symbol in the Bible, you can find equivalences of it somewhere else in the Bible. And when you put them together, the interpretation becomes obvious. Because I keep insisting that God interprets his own word. He's not trying to confuse us. He's not going, oh, here, I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff you can't understand. There, figure that out. He's telling us. In the battle, it's going to be horses and swords. Who knows? But if you go look at the Middle East right now, what are they doing? Horses and swords. Right? Right. Okie dokie. Anything else? I'm really glad you brought that up, Duane, because it's, it is kind of common thinking that I think is an excuse for dismissing a quarter of the Bible. And I don't like that thinking. I think we need to remember that literal, literal interpretation of the scriptures does not mean all of the scriptures are a science text. <coughs> right. Literal means we interpret it as we do all other literature by the same rules. So there's poetry. And there's allegory. There's and there's symbols. Yeah. There's all these things that we we have no trouble understanding yeah. when we read. Literature. Any other book. Yeah. But we think we have to interpret the Bible differently. Yeah. Well, God meant for us to understand it. Yeah, we know a simile when we see one. You know, the common argument, and this has actually happened to me, I'm not just making this up, I keep saying, read the Bible literally. In fact, I've changed it from literally to face value. You take the Bible at face value. If the Bible creates a simile, we recognize it as a simile, and we read it as a simile. But the people who try to criticize the way that I approach the Bible, say, well, if you read the Bible literally, and that's the voice they use, it's that foghorn, leghorn voice, you know. <laughs> well, I'll say, boy, that if you read the Bible literally. And the floods have to clap their hands. And then when Jesus said he's a door, 
He means he's a piece of wood with a handle on him, and you know that's how you literalists read it. And I have to point out, no, we get a simile when we see it. We know the rules of language. And we're capable of understanding a symbol, but the symbol means something. And I want to make sure that when we interpret the symbol, it's in league with the whole Bible, as opposed to just, that means geese will fly north, you know, just making stuff up. Make sense? Yeah. Anything else? You may. Verse 14, when Jesus is given the kingdom, it says uh, the hymn was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men in every language might serve him. What is the, obviously that seems to be more than just Jews there. Right. So entering into the kingdom is... When you look at the book of Zechariah, we're told that when Christ is ruling from Jerusalem, that all the nations that came against Jerusalem... They all have to come up to Jerusalem to worship God on the Feast of Booths every year. And if they don't, God smites them with no rain and puts some curses on them so that they will have to come recognize the authority of Christ. So that plainly says that there are Gentiles on the planet. They're not the church, but they are Gentiles on the planet who went through the conflagration, who went through the war, and they're still on the planet. They didn't die, and now they're going to do obeisance to God's Christ, which is very much like what God would be like. Okay, I've put my king on there. Now everybody that used to fight him, go worship him. So they would be non-believers, non-elect? Is that the best way to look at them? There's no reason not to think so. It's still this age. There's still non-believers on the planet. Because don't forget, we haven't gotten to the, the Revelation 20, second resurrection and the judgment by God of everybody according to what's in the books. That hasn't happened yet. That happens after the millennium. So yes, there still has to be people to be judged. That's just kind of putting the pieces together, and, and it's my best estimate of it. Anything else? Did everybody get this chart? I'll leave it up here for a little longer if anybody wants to make a copy. Leon has a yardstick, which I used for this, and he will let you borrow it if you need to. That's what phones are for. <laughs> That's what phones are for. You know, I have this new app on my phone that I really like. It allows me to talk to other people, and they can talk to me, you know, the way a phone used to work. And it's, it's so cool. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.